about three months ago, Lance was preaching. He was wrapping up his sermon, and he made some point about his text. I think it was 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in some way, that point connected to some instructions in Ephesians. And Lance made the comment, he said, you know what? I can't wait to see what Pastor Sean is going to do with Ephesians chapter 5. He said, that'll be interesting. Well, we're here. I stretched Ephesians 4 as long as I could. Just kidding. I really liked Ephesians 4. That was good stuff, Ephesians 4. But here we are. It's Ephesians 5. We are talking about wives submit to your husbands. We're talking about the husband being the head of the wife. And we're talking about gender roles. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, As I often do in preparation for sermons, I I see what others have written on the topic, and there has been much written on this topic. Um, And I went to Tim Keller, as I often do. He's a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor in New York. I find generally he's wise, level-headed. And uh, uh, in the early 90s, he preached nine consecutive sermons on these uh, 12 verses, which is incredible. Um, And he preaches like at least twice as long as me, sometimes three times as long as I do. So just let that sink in for a minute. Um, But this is also incredible. Um, he's He's in Manhattan, okay? It took him until the seventh sermon out of nine to finally say anything about headship, gender roles, or submission. Um, He was like ducking and dodging like seven sermons before it finally came out. Anyway, I hope my approach will be a little different than that, at least a little shorter anyway. Um, Because, partly because when I see something sort of controversial in a passage, and this passage has plenty that's controversial, I often, and actually I think this is probably, I do this to a fault, um, I can sort of lose sight of all a lot of other good stuff, and I just kind of focus on the controversy. Um, like this past Christmas, uh, some of you were there, I preached probably like the most depressing Christmas sermon ever. Um, there's so many great things you can say on Christmas, uh, but I couldn't help myself. I just had to reflect on like how much suffering there is in the world, and like how many people are still really sad on December 25. Like I focused like a laser on the most anxious aspect of Christmas. And, and the reason that I sometimes focus on the controversial bit, the hardest line or like the most puzzling word I can find, is that I know what it's like to sit at home and to read the Bible and to be confused. And to think to myself, like, huh, like, really? Um, Like, why does it say that? Like, that sounds bad to me. Um, I'm sure you guys have that, too. And so I get to a part that I don't like, but then I remind myself of this truth. I believe that God is good. I believe that God 
is good. So what part of this equation is more likely to be wrong? Is God wrong or is my understanding wrong? And by asking that question, I am trying to resist my first impulse, okay? My first impulse is to just skip over the part I don't like. But if we believe that God is good, and we do, and if we believe that his Bible, even his whole Bible, points us to him, and I believe that, then it should be profitable to talk about even Ephesians 5, verse 22. Even though, at first glance, there are plenty of good reasons not to do that. Okay? For starters, you may have noticed that this passage kind of talks a lot about marriage. And you may also have noticed that most of us, in fact, by my count, two-thirds of our church are not married. <laughs> and I'm not sure what you think about being single, um, but Paul, the guy writing this, who was single himself, he says in 1 Corinthians 7 that maybe the church would actually be healthier and stronger if more of its members didn't get married. Okay? They remain single. I, you don't hear that very often in the church, but it's true. Um, so I'm not trying to sell you on getting married. I don't think this would really sell you on getting married exactly, but... Um, even if you're not married, I still think it'll be helpful to pay attention to this. And the reason I think that is because definitely it is giving instructions to married people. But there's something else that Paul is doing, and I think it's even more important here. And that is, in addition to giving some instructions, Paul is also painting a picture. Like he's giving us an image of what God is like. Okay. So for that reason, I think it's important for all of us to pay attention. Um. But probably the bigger reason not to talk about this passage is that people have abused this passage a lot over the years. Every part of the Bible, I should say, every part of the Bible has been twisted by sinful people. It's what sinful people do. Um, but maybe this one more than most. And the trouble is that Paul definitely says, wives, submit to your husbands. And I could explain to you how, like, this passage is like a really progressive position in Paul's day. Like, in his day, like, women were like property. They could be disposed of. Um, you, you, could, you could do all kinds of terrible things to your wife without any consequences at all. So for Paul to talk about loving your wife and serving your life like Christ loves and serves the church, like, that is radical, progressive, like, way ahead of its time. But he still says, wives, submit to your husbands. And uh, submit there, it means what you think it means. Um, like, there's no, like, fancy Greek gymnastics I can do here. Like, it does mean submit. Um, and I realize that he says that we should all submit to one another, right? That's the first thing he says, verse 21 which is important. It's really important. But then he also like very conspicuously tells wives to do it twice. And husbands only once. And 
And so I don't think it's all just like mutual submission. And, and the reason I think that is because in the next sentence, Paul explains how this submission has to do with authority. So he says that the husband is the head of the wife, which means a lot of things, of course. Um, but in the context of Ephesians, where this idea of headship is pretty common, when we're talking about Jesus. Um, in the context of Ephesians, it at least also means that the husband has some kind of authority. In which case, asking the, the wife to submit to the husband makes sense. Okay, so this is really hard because I know that a lot of men have used these words to abuse and mistreat their wives, which is deplorable and without excuse. And so there's a part of me, because of those shameful people who have abused this, there's a part of me that just wants to skip this. Okay? So this is a passage I've struggled with for a long time. And I've struggled with it because Paul is definitely saying something about marriage relationships and men and women. But to be honest... I have a much clearer idea of what this does not look like than what it does look like. Okay? So that's where I'm going to start. All right? What is Paul not talking about? I got four things. First, he is not talking about unconditional obedience. Okay? Like he's not talking about whatever the man says, the woman's got to do. There's this very important principle in Christian ethics. Uh, it comes from Acts chapter 5. Okay? In Acts chapter 5, it's the early church, like real early days of the church, and some new Christians are going around and they are telling people about Jesus. And then the local government, the, the leaders, tell them that they have to stop doing that. And this is like a conflict for them because elsewhere in the Bible, Romans 13, it says that we should all submit to like, the government. Like We should obey the government. So, did they stop telling people about Jesus? They did not stop telling people about Jesus. Um, in Acts chapter 5, Peter, he's one of the leaders of the church, he tells the government people, he says, God should judge whether we should obey you rather than God. Okay? And what he's saying is, normally, okay, we will, we will obey authority, but not if that authority contradicts God. Okay? So if the government, or in this case, if a husband tells his wife to do something that is incompatible with the gospel, she should not do it. That's the first thing. It's not just talking about submission no matter what. Second, it's not talking about using your authority to make your life easier. Uh, the husband doesn't have the authority to just get what he wants because he wants it, and he's the man. Okay? Uh, Paul is very clear that the model for this kind of authority is Jesus Christ, okay? who you'll remember set aside his rights, right? set aside his rights and put the needs of the church ahead of his own desires. Okay? So, 
whatever authority husbands have, it is not for their own pleasure, okay? It is to be used to serve, especially to serve their wives. Third, it's not talking about culturally defined gender stereotypes. So, Somebody says, well, the husband's ahead of the wife. That means the husband should work and the wife should stay home with the kids. Now, there's nothing wrong with that arrangement. I actually think that's, that's a great arrangement. But that, you should know, like that's a really new idea about gender roles, okay? Um, that the husband works for money and, and the wife stays at home with the kids. So up until like the last hundred years, in pretty much any profession anywhere in the world, like farming or trades, whatever, husbands and wives worked together. The men mostly got the credit and the property rights, um, but the work itself was shared. So you all know Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, it's the, talks about the wife of noble character in the Bible. You know what it says about her? It says she's a good mom. That's true. But it also says, it says, she considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. You catch that? Mom's a realtor. Okay. So maybe, maybe traditional gender roles mean that the wife can work outside the home, but only if she works in real estate. Maybe that's the principle there. Or sometimes people say, like these gender roles Paul's talking about, that's like women should be domestic. They should cook. Unless it's on a grill and then the man should do it. It's like, hmm, where does it say that in the Bible? Like the man should be in charge of the finances. What book of the Bible was that in? Let's be careful about assuming that um, 1950s America was the end-all, be-all of Christian family values. Um, And let's stay close to what the Bible actually says and not assume that Paul is just imagining Leave it to Beaver as like the Christian norm, okay? So just because he's talking about differences between genders doesn't mean it's talking about some, like, culturally defined gender stereotypes. Fourth, it's not talking about all male-female relationships, okay? So Paul goes to some lengths to put these instructions in the context of a loving and committed marriage covenant, okay? Without the love and commitment just blind submission and headship, like, just because I'm a man, like, that can be really destructive. The love and commitment of the marriage covenant, that's what makes this work, okay? He's talking about marriage. Okay, so we have an idea of what it's not. So what is it? All right, three options. Um, They aren't perfect. I'll just go out and say that right from the outset. They're not perfect. But I think they, each, they could be promising, all right? So first, Paul here is 
definitely referring back to the creation story. Okay? Adam and Eve. So he quotes it in verse 31. And, and in that section that he's quoting from in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, um, right around there, God gives like some tasks to the man and to the woman. And some of them are the same, and then some of them are different. And in particular, one of the things that he says is that the, the man, Adam, is supposed to name things. And then it says several times that the woman is the helper. It's the helper. And I see that sometimes in relationships, all right, where, where women seem to take great joy and are often very good at helping. Like working for the interests of the group. They don't necessarily need all the credit. They often take joy in helping, which is great. Okay, that's great. But it occurs to me that that kind of helpfulness kind of sounds like just good Christian selflessness. And if it's a good idea for wives, it's probably a really good idea for husbands, too, and probably just for all of us to be helpful like that. So maybe women are especially good at being helpers. But even then, like, the word for helper, it's a word that's usually used to describe God. So, like, Psalm 54 and Psalm 121, like, the helper in those passages, it's God. So, if women are especially good at helpers, like, they're, they're not pushover helpers, apparently. All right, second option for what this means. I worry a little bit that if you take a strictly egalitarian view of marriage, okay, where everybody's the same and everybody is equally responsible in the marriage in the same way, um, let's just say we're talking about verse 27. All right, um, where Paul gives this particular task to the husband uh, to help his wife grow in holiness. Basically, like, help your wife become a better follower of Jesus. Obviously, I think Paul would agree with me in a second, that command is, is for husbands and wives. Like, we should, they should be doing that for each other, helping each other grow closer to the Lord. But why does Paul just say it to the man? All right, this is my guess. All right. I can imagine if both of you are equally responsible in the equal way all the time, maybe sometimes neither of you will be responsible. Okay? Like maybe it's been a long time since you did devotions together or prayed together as a couple, and both of you are just waiting for the other one to step up, right? Because they're responsible. So maybe the wisdom here is that Paul doesn't want spiritual responsibility for each other to ever slip through the cracks. And so he just names somebody and says, all right, you take the initiative. You're both responsible, but you take the initiative. Just a thought. Third option, hanging with me here, this, this is a lot third option for what this means. Some people say that this idea of headship is like tie-breaking, okay? Like normally husband and wife talk it out, but if you can't make a decision, husband breaks the tie. Because you could say like, well, you know, if, if we can't come to an agreement, 
We just won't decide. But, of course, sometimes not deciding is deciding, right? So, if, if I want to move to sunny and warm California, and Lauren wants to stay in, like, cold and gray Michigan, um, and we talk about it, and we just can't decide, then Lauren wins, right? We, we, we decided on Michigan by just not deciding. And so some say, like, normally, talk it out, but then if you're stuck, the husband breaks the tie. California. Now, what I, what I don't like about that advice is that I think it, it could be an invitation to assume that you're stuck before you really are. So, like, my experience is that if you, if you invest in good listening and uh, trying to understand and trying to help your spouse, like, articulate himself or herself, like, if you're both devoted to loving one another and listening to the other, um, I don't think you're going to be stuck very often. So, like, for me and Lauren, we don't have a perfect marriage, but in the last seven years, I can't, I can't remember ever having a tie that needed to be broken. So, I mean, maybe it'll happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And that's where something that Keller mentioned really was helpful to me. So he was talking about when he and his wife had to decide whether or not to move to New York City uh, from Virginia, I think. And he said they were stuck a long time, like weeks and months. Like they just, he wanted to go and she didn't want to go. And they just were spinning their wheels. And so finally he said, I guess we can't decide. So I guess we're going to stay. And then his wife spoke up. And she said, No, I trust you. I know that you love me. So I want you, as my husband, to lead. Now, do you see how that's very different from how we usually think about it? So he didn't get the authority by claiming his right or quoting Paul. He got the authority to decide when his wife really gave him the authority. When she said, I want you to decide. He got the authority because she knew that even if she disagreed with him, she knew that he loved her and she knew that she could trust him. And so maybe that is why the instructions for husbands in our passage, to love their wives, etc., those instructions are twice as long as the instructions directed to wives. And it makes me wonder if true and God-honoring headship can only take place when the woman voluntarily submits. And what I mean is, husbands are not entitled to headship just because they're husbands. They're not entitled to verses 22 to 24 until they have demonstrated to their wives verses 25 to 33. Keller says it this way. He says, basically, if your wife doesn't trust you, 
Like if you're not living such a sacrificial life for her, consistently putting her needs ahead of yours so that she trusts you, then she's not going to give you headship and you don't deserve it. And suddenly, suddenly I realize what Paul has been saying all along. That this whole thing about headship is really about Christ and his church. So Jesus Christ is our Lord. Ephesians 1, verse 10. You remember this. Way back in September, the theme verse for all of Ephesians. God's big plan for the universe is to put Christ at the head of everything. We are. The whole plan is that we're supposed to submit to his authority and give him our whole lives. But Jesus didn't claim that authority as a birthright, which he could have done. He didn't demand it. Right? What did he do? Well, first he came and he lived among us. And then he voluntarily suffered and died on a cross for sins that he didn't commit but that we committed. In other words, he didn't, he didn't demand our submission. He earned it. He gave his body and his blood to demonstrate his love beyond a shadow of a doubt so that we could submit to him without fear or reservation, but in complete confidence. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, sometimes it feels like we're pretty deep in the weeds here. And uh, we ask that you give us great wisdom, your wisdom, to understand how to apply this in our lives. Um, how to submit to one another and how that works out in a marriage. Uh, Lord, help us to do that well in a way that honors you and uh, in a way that is filled with great love. Um, but in this all, Lord, I pray that most of all, we would see you uh, who could have claimed, could have claimed the authority, insisted upon it, demanded it, but instead who took a much, much, much harder path to earn it. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And we ask now that you'd be with us in his name. Amen.